but I'm excited as we kick off this new series, uh, walking through 1 Samuel. Let me do uh, just a little bit of background work so that we're all on the same page. Looking at the Bible as a whole, let's go back to the New Testament so that we see where this book fits in. Uh, We've got Abraham, roughly 2100 B.C., so this is the father of Israel. This is where the seed for the nation of Israel is planted. And so Abraham then has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and then Joseph. And we see it continue through uh, then 400 years of slavery. God says, I got this chosen people. I'm going to do things. There's going to be a Messiah that's going to come through them. It's going to be great. So 400 years of slavery. Then you got Moses. He leads them out of it. Then you got Joshua. Then you've got the time uh, of the judges, and that does not go very well. Well, you've got these 12 tribes of Israel, and they are simply, uh, essentially self-governing. They've got uh, God, but they've got some priests, and, and they've got these judges, and all of it together. It just wasn't gelling quite right. And so then we get to the point we're at tonight, and that's 1 Samuel. Okay, so 1 Samuel kicks off the time where Israel demands a king. They see all the other nations around them with kings. Now, they weren't necessarily doing well, (laughs) those other nations, but Israel wanted a king. They sacrificed sacrificed, uh, freedom, essentially, for the comfort of servitude. And so what happens then, now just to, to give you the rest of the picture, after 1 Samuel, then we see uh, the kings go from Saul uh, to David to Solomon, and, and then he has a couple kiddos that split the kingdom. The 12 tribes of Israel are divided. There's 10 of them that go to the, to the, the north. This is northern Israel, what we call um, <clears throat> northern Israel any, anyhow. And so those 10 tribes, they have kings. All of them are wicked. And then there's the other two tribes that go down south, and so they are Judah, southern Israel, and they have a bunch of kings, and every other one of them are wicked. Eventually, all 12 tribes are going into exile uh, at different times, and there's a period of time where not much happens in the land. There is no prophet, and God's word isn't spoken the way it was in the past, and then we have a Messiah come named Jesus, and that was 2,000 years ago. So we are smack dab in the middle of Old Testament history. This, uh, this book is a narrative of history, so we're going we're gonna to preach it, we're going to teach it a little bit different. If you're digging into New Testament works like any of Paul's letters, y- you, need to, you need to sit on those verses and you need to chew them up. That's the way you read that, because they're commands, they're instructions. Uh, here, we can rock and roll through it just a little bit quicker. You, you look and you see um, where we can pull things out of it, but we don't necessarily, there's not going to be many two-verse teachings in this series, if you know what I mean. Um, so tonight, we're going to jump through the first 20 or so verses. But these events happened about 1100 B.C., now, they weren't necessarily written then, like many Old Testament books in the Bible. It, it wasn't like these things happened, and then they were written immediately after. They had an oral tradition of storytelling where they would, and they, they, had it at a, they took it to a whole other level. So this isn't the way we think of storytelling. For them, like the details are accurate, and, and the tribes passed down the details of these stories for generations and generations, and sometimes it's a couple hundred years before they actually write these things down because they don't have a lot of the methods that we obviously do now. New Testament, completely different ballgame. Things happened a lot quicker. All uh, of the 27 New Testament books that we have were written within roughly a 50-year of one another. Um, so it's a whole different ballgame. But, but for the Old Testament, these things took place um, here in 1 Samuel around 1100 B.C. We don't know the author. Some say maybe it was Samuel. 
problem is it records Samuel's death about halfway through uh, First and Second Samuel. So he might have done some of it, but more than likely it was disciples of his down through the generations. And so the scope that we cover in First Samuel, and, and just in case you're wondering, we're not going to, at least we don't have plans to jump into Second Samuel after this. So for First Samuel, the scope that we see is this. It starts with the birth of Samuel, which we cover tonight, and it will go all the way through the death of Saul. So there's three primary characters that you're going to see over and over in 1 Samuel, and that is Samuel the prophet, then you see King Saul, this is the first king, and then you see David. Now David, by the end of 1 Samuel, he's not the king yet. He's just going through some pre-kingship trials with, with Saul. And so here's the outline, essentially. You can break up 1 Samuel into four different um, parts here in the outline. The first seven chapters out of 37, or excuse me, 31 chapters, the first seven chapters are the pre-monarchy um, events, essentially. So prior to them getting their first king, chapters 1 through 7 talk about Samuel and what's happening through that prophet. Then chapters 8 through 12 are all about Israel's demand for a king. And then chapters 13 through 15 talk about the inauguration of the first king, King Saul. And then chapters 16 all the way through 31 are, are the alternatives to King Saul. Basically, it's a bunch of craziness with David running around trying to be killed by Saul. All kinds of good stuff. We'll dig into it. Now, last time when we walked through Hebrews, we, we had this title, Jesus Is. And then each week we saw through Hebrews, the author revealed to us who Jesus Christ is, and we would fill in that blank. All kinds of awesome parts to that. This is going to be a little bit different in that the title for this entire series is Jesus Is King. Now, Jesus is king is us as Christians being able to look back and say, hey, we're reading 1 Samuel, we see what happened in history, but we know for us, Jesus is king. And, and so it's not going to say in there, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, Jesus is king, but Jesus has, is, and will always be king. So this is a timely word. I don't know if you all know about Super Tuesday and all that fun stuff, but if you turn on the news at all, I'm sure you have seen it's a timely word to be reminded. We got presidents, there's kings, there's dictators out there, but we got a king in Jesus. And everyone, for those presidents, for those dictators, for those presidents that follow him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, or those who hate him, none of them measure up. We would be disappointed with all of them. But we're not disappointed in Christ. And so the theme for this entire book is that they want a king, and they choose human kings, and they put their hope in people that they were never supposed to really put their hope in. The idea of having a king is not that bad. Matter of fact, Moses shares details as to what it's like to have a king and how you should behave. It was hundreds of years prior to Israel having a king that those instructions were given. So God's plan included some point in time they would probably have a king in Israel. But we see uh, all of that unfold here. So, uh, tonight, the theme for tonight, for the first 20 verses of 1 Samuel, is, is actually in the form of a question. Now, here's what I've noticed as I go throughout life, and I see it in your life, I see it in my life, because of our external circumstances, the way we grew up, the things that we just naturally think about, seeds are planted all the time with desire. I don't know about you, but if you're like, you just sit back and think about your day to day, how many times did you come up with a new desire, a new thought, thinking, that'd be all right. I, I could get some more of this. 
I could, have, I could do that. That's an option. Never thought of that. But I'm like some. I, all the time, desires spring up. And sometimes it's easy to discern. The other day we were drive, I was driving by myself uh, to McPherson for a meeting. And as I pulled into town, I was in la-la land just, you know, thinking about that beautiful drive between here and McPherson. And, and I, the thought just occurred to me, we should buy a new car. Now, Tara and I desire to have more kids. Right now, we just got this two-door coupe, and it's great. We love it. I drive it around. But really, we can only haul Silas around, like, conveniently. We're talking spoiled here. Conveniently in a four-door vehicle. And we just got one of them. I know you're feeling horrible for me already. And so I was thinking to myself, man, we should get a new car because if we have, new, if we have more kids, then, you know, this will be good. And, and I started to play it out in my mind, all the different options, how we could go about it. And then I just thought to myself real quick, I just said, God, is this you or is this me? And he said, you just want something new. <laughs> it ain't me. It was solved quickly. I knew what was going on. But here's the problem. Even for some of us in the room tonight, you think that it would always be super clear cut if our desires are from God, if they're his will, or if they're just stuff that we came up with on our own. But it ain't, and you know it's not. Sometimes it's hard when, when you're thinking to yourself uh, things like I've, uh, school. And years ago when I thought maybe God was calling me to school, but I also wanted to go to Colorado, and so I found a, a school in Colorado, and I thought, well, is, is this me just wanting to have fun, or is it God's will that I would go there? It could have been both. I didn't go. He said, no, it ain't going to happen. But like in the moment, it was so hard to discern. Is this for me or is it for God? And so tonight we're going to see a gal named Hannah, the mom of Samuel. She's going to fall on her face before God in prayer. She's going to take her desire to him, and she's going to find out God will very clearly, maybe not always in the moment, make it clear, but he will make it clear. And so I want you to think about your own desires. Some of you desire children. We're talking about uh, a baby boy tonight. Some of you desire marriage. You're single. Some of you desire leaving a legacy or retirement. Some of you have crazy dreams, like starting some coffee shop that be, man, maybe for the word, like we can just get together and hang out, and the word of God is all over the place, and it's just an environment conducive to, to talking about Jesus. So, but you think, nah, I don't know if that could even work in a town like this. Like some of you, you just got crazy off-the-wall stuff. And you're having a hard time figuring out whether this is of God or if it's just your crazy idea. So think about those things tonight. And we're going to walk through this, and hopefully this will help you. All right. So we're going to walk through this, and I'm going to stop just a little bit here in the first ten verses. And, and, and then uh, we'll park later on down the road. But there's a few verses here that I want to just share tidbits with so that we make sure we get uh, the full teaching here. Let's kick it off in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerahem, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of, come on, give me some easier names than this, um, son of Zup, an Ephra Ephrathite. That was just verse 1. This is going to be good. <laughs> he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, who we're going to talk a lot about tonight, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Let's talk about that for a second. Just because 
people had more than one spouse doesn't mean God was condoning more than one spouse. You've probably read all throughout the Old Testament, people with many wives, some people who sought after God with all their heart, and yet they had many wives. What do we do with that, knowing the biblical definition of marriage? Again, just because God, he knew it, he allowed it, but he wasn't promoting this as his design for marriage. In those days also, this isn't a cultural deal, but it's important. Elkanah, the, the, the husband of Hannah, he was a Levite. doesn't say it here, but we find out later. He was a Levite, and he didn't live where he was supposed to be living, but he had some lineage that could have gone through and, and eventually been priests. And so he wanted his legacy, uh, surely, because legacy was a big deal, he wanted it to come through him. He wanted children, and oftentimes, if you married someone and they were barren, you would find uh, another wife so that you could have children. And so looks like he's done that. Verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Shiloh is about 15, 20 miles from Jerusalem, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, and Ferb, just kidding, were priests of the Lord. So if you don't have kids, you, you, don't, you didn't get that one. We're priests of the Lord. Another quick note, verse 3. Three times a year, male, adult, Hebrews, they were called to go for three different festivals up to um, Shiloh to worship. And so this is showing this is a godly family. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing, and it's all good. Now it says Lord of hosts. The Hebrew word for host is armies, or the Lord of war, the Lord of armies, both uh, angelic armies and on earth. We don't think oftentimes like, hey, come meet Jesus. Um, his, his daddy is the Lord of war. Like we don't usually introduce Jesus. We don't evangelize that way, but that is who he is. And for them at that time, they conquer all this land. That's a big deal to call him Lord of hosts. Verse four, on that day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. <laughs> Don't you love that? He, because he loved her. Though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival used to speak, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. I love the sovereignty of God in this. They're not saying, well, Hannah just didn't know what was going on. And, well, she's concerned. Is she going to have a baby? Is she not going to have? No, the author's saying the Lord had closed her womb. So there's going to be a big old prayer coming here in a second. But it's all in the context of God, before this girl even has a desire to have a child, God said, I'm going to make you barren. Like, it ain't going to happen right now. Funny how God sometimes moves circumstances in such a way that he, act, he then, when it seems like we're far from him and it doesn't seem like there's hope in it, and he says, I'm going to put you out here so that you've got the desire to come back here. Sometimes he works that way. But he's sovereign. Provoke her. There, year by year, and as, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? He's not super perceptive, is he? <laughs> Am I not more to you than ten sons? Sorry to break it to you, homie. <laughs> she wants a baby. 
After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Let me say this. When it comes to our prayer life, the difference between you having a real relationship with Jesus and the difference between you, the difference between a real relationship and a business transaction is often in the way that you engage God. He wants you to come to him holistically. Sometimes it's appropriate and good to bawl your eyes out at the throne of God. It doesn't make you any closer to him. It doesn't get you brownie points. But sometimes it's good just to break down and to show that you trust he's a daddy who wants to wrap his arms around you. Because he is. He's not there just to say yay or nay. He's there to hold you. And she engages him wholly. And then in verse 11, it says, And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and do not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. All right, the first thing we see here, with your desires, you've got to actually give them to God. Now, I know this sounds simple and almost assumed, but it's not. Think about it. Hannah, she's tore up. She wants a baby. She's wondering, why in the world do I not have a baby? Deuteronomy says that for these Israelite women to have children was a sign of blessing and favor from God, and to be barren was a sign that you're cursed. So she's probably struggling with her identity in the father at this point. Like, what are you trying to tell me, God? By not giving me a child. But there's also got to be some other motivations at play, right? Because we read these stories and we think, oh, it's all so pure and perfect and wonderful, and I'm sure they were just saints. But think about it. She's getting beat up by Paninana. She's got all these people who, who are probably hassling her as to why she doesn't have kids, looking at her, judging her. What is her motivation for wanting a baby? Is it so she doesn't get teased anymore by the other wife? Is it so that she somehow proves her worth? By producing a child for Elkanah, he's saying all the right things, but you know she's got to feel pretty worthless. Is it that whatever comes from her body, she wants to be used for the glory of God? Now, we can't answer those questions because we don't know her heart, but we do know that it all came flooding out as she comes to the tabernacle. She comes here, and she is pouring out her heart to God. You and I, I think we, especially especially those of you who have been walking with Jesus for a while. I'm going to call you out. We're, all in this, we're in the boat here, okay? I think sometimes we have desires in our heart, and we struggle with whether it's of God or not, but we get so emotionally exhausted because of the other avenues we take that we assume somewhere in there that we've been praying about it when we ain't actually ever taken it to God. Like some of us, we have desires in our heart. And we talked to our friends so much about it. We're exhausted, and yet we knew the end of that road was hollow. But did you actually take it to God? Some of us, we have thought about it and dwelled on the desire so much in our minds, we just can't even sleep at night. Did you actually take it to God? Some of us have done so much Google research as to whether this plan could work or not. Did you actually take it to God? 
you can say all day long, man, I know, I follow Jesus, and, and I trust him. If you don't actually take it to him, you don't trust him. Where you go with your junk is where you find your strength. And so if you're not going to him, you don't really trust him. And if you ain't going to him, you're trying to do this on your own. Some of us, we're so, consum- we're so used to the Christian culture that we live in that, that it, it's, a, it's taboo to even ask another Christian at this point, like, have you prayed about it? Because the assumption is, surely they have. I'll tell you what, one of the first things I do when I counsel young men and women and, and they come and we talk about life and, and they pour out whatever they got going on, I'll, I'll just stop them and say, hey, let's just touch base here. Did you actually take this to God? you would assume it's always, uh, yeah, pastor, that more times than not, it's silence for a little bit. Well, no, I mean, I took it, to, well, no, no, did you actually take it to God? That's obviously step one, but I think there's some things that make us hesitate. Number one, I think sometimes w- we think to ourselves, you know what, I don't hear from God that much on a regular basis. They're like, I don't know that he's actually going to answer it. Sometimes we think, i got a desire, I could take it to God, but it's almost a waste of time because I don't hear uh, from him on some of the big stuff in life. Why would I take this to him? But he wants to speak to you. God's not a mean God trying to hide himself. He didn't place his spirit inside of those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ, just so he can run you around and make your mind get all twisted. He's there. He's capable of speaking and he wants to. Sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of that. Sometimes we hesitate because we think to ourselves, you know what, what I desire seems to be good, and I don't feel like I'm worthy of getting good gifts from God. I'll tell you what, if you received salvation through Jesus Christ, there is no better gift, so why are you coming to the table thinking something somehow is more valuable than what he freely gave away? And then sometimes we think, man, I hesitate to come to him because if I come to him and this isn't of him, I'm going to get rebuked. Our God's a good God, and he is a God of wrath, but he took that wrath out on his son so that he can gently walk with you. Doesn't mean he ain't going to flip your finger once in a while, but I'd rather be rebuked going to God than sit in, in internal turmoil because hidden prayers always lead to internal turmoil. There is a spirit inside you crying out to take it to the throne of God. And you will only come to a a destination of frustration when you keep those built in. God's saying, give it to me. Talk to me about it. Cry your eyes out. You can't figure this out on your own. It'll wear you down. But Hannah comes to the table, and I don't know, again, what her motivations are, but you can tell she enters the prayer saying, I want a baby, but by the end of this thing, she's saying, listen, if you hear me and you actually give me a baby, I want to take a vow. And this is called the Nazarite vow. You see it way back in Numbers chapter 6, but essentially this is it. She's saying, I want my boy, I want my kid to be separated for your sake. And so the Nazarite vow, without going into tons of detail, it was a time where you were showing yourself to be separated for the sake of God and his holiness. And, and it was just for a time. But you would essentially, you, you'd stay away from dead bodies, you would not uh, drink wine, you would, um, you would not shave your head. There was just several things that showed that you were separating yourself. And so she's saying, take this baby and use it 
Like, I devote this kid back to you. She had kingdom focus. It's easy. I think it'd be easy to hear this sermon and think to yourself, man, is this one of those, like, name it and claim it, like, just take your desires to God and he'll give you what you want kind of thing? Listen, it's, it, it's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. And so when you come uh, to the table with God, you need to understand something is going to happen. Something's going to happen because here's what happens. is you come in and you're unsure, I don't know if what I got going on in here is of God or not, but you come into the holy presence of God. Keep in mind, when the Spirit of God lives in us, we're always technically in the presence of God. But when you intentionally spend time at the throne of God, if you got jacked up motivations, they're going to be made known because God's holiness is reflected. Right? So you're going to see one way or the other. But this is where it's crucial that we don't just come to him and, and come flippantly and, and quickly and just say, you know what, I'm going to throw it out there. And I'm going I'm to see what happens. I'm going to back off real quick. No, you've got to spend time. Let the desire simmer in the presence of God. Let it simmer so that it can be shown for all that it is. Come to God and you're like, I don't know if I'm going to hear from you. I don't know what's happening. It's okay to come and take that desire to God and say, God, either kill it or grow it. If it isn't of you, kill it. If it's of you, grow it. God, either change it or change me. But I got to take it to you. I got to take it to you. And you got to give it to him. You got to let him be the one to choose whether it's going to continue or not. But if you sit in the presence of God, the end result should be you coming out of there saying, listen, I might have come in, and this happens, I might have come in with some selfish motivations. Maybe I wanted to buy that house. Maybe I wanted to, to, to switch careers. And maybe I didn't really have super holy intentions, but in sitting in the presence of God, he said, you know what? I'm not going to kill the desire. I'm going to shift the desire from your kingdom to my kingdom. I'm going to have you get a baby, but that baby's going to live for me. I'm going to shift you here to, hey, I'm going to give you this thing, but you're going to use it to bless the nations. We come out of this thinking to ourselves, and this better be how it happens, is that we come out of it thinking, God, how can I give this blessing back to you? How can I expand your kingdom? I'll tell you what, that's a beautiful process. But let him take you through that process. Verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. So Eli is the priest who's sitting there kind of watching this. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Let's get super spiritual. Haters are going to hate. Oh, you got to feel sorry for poor Hannah at this point. If there's one place where she feels like she could come and be safe and just talk to God, right? This is once every every few months she's coming up to the tabernacle. She's like, I'm just gonna just gonna come before Him in His presence and I'm gonna pray a little bit. It would be here. Yet this priest, oh man, and this is there is more to come on all this. This priest is so unfamiliar with fervent prayers and so familiar with what drunkenness may look like, or that this is something that very well could happen on a regular basis coming into the tabernacle drunk. We see his sons, they're not exactly saints. We're gonna get into that in a few weeks. That he doesn't see what this fervent prayer looks like. I love little Silas. Two year old boys are a blast. 
think. At least this one is. There was a specific time where I knew it was Tara and I. We were in year two, three, four and of marriage, and we were talking about having children. There was just, I, I remember God specifically over a period of time laying the desire on my heart to have a son. I really, for the first several years of marriage, I didn't desire children. I didn't think about it very often. But I remember he, he gave me the desire to have a, a child, um, which is good, because then he gave us a child. And there have been lots of times in the first two years of his life that he has shown love and affection and it's been fun and exciting and it's affirmed that desire. It's like, man, you got desire, I got desire, we're a family, this is fun. But it ain't always like that. Matter of fact, last night, last night was pretty indicative of how things have been going in our house lately. I come home from work and I can tell he, he, just woke up from his nap not too long ago and it takes him like two hours to take a nap and then four hours to get snapped out of the nap like it's just it's just ridiculous and and so he's sitting uh in the bedroom on his mama's lap watching uh curious george or something <laughs> we just give him a few minutes to zone out to get his bearings back and, and so i go back there and <laughs> i don't help things but i get down there because he won't acknowledge me for nothing and so i get down like three inches from his face like, hey, buddy, you want to talk? You know, I'm, I'm kind of just egging things on a little bit. But I know he, every night he, gets, he doesn't want anything to do with me. He's become such a mama's boy. He's always running to his mama for everything that I'm just like, you know what? This ain't happening. We're, we're going to work it out. We've got a lot of years left together. We're going to work this out. And so he actually, he pushes my face away. And then I just realized this is at least my second sermon illustration in the last couple months about him pushing my face or kicking me. Um, there might be a pattern here. Then he puts his foot, you know, they're only like this big, little guys. And so he, he put his foot up on my throat and pushed me away. <laughs> and, and then in the first five minutes of me being home, Tara is leading us, leading him in prayer. I find myself in this prayer thinking, like, how did I get here? The prayer is this. Dear God, please help us to love all of the members of the family, even Daddy. And help us to show that we love Daddy. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, like, how, I didn't, what? How did this happen? And this is a legit prayer, and this isn't the first time it's happened. He's been praying a lot of prayers like that. But guess what? No matter how he treats me, it ain't going to change my desire for him. Haters are going to hate. Even when those little haters are your own little haters. They're going to hate. But it shouldn't shift. A God-given desire, key being God-given desire. Sometimes you'll find, even in the church, other believers will oppose you. Sometimes you, you, you're going to have uh, thoughts and ideas for ministries and different things happening. Where even you come and talk to a pastor, and we're going to be like, "Sounds good." That ain't happening, you know. Like it just there, there's going to be times where even we think, "Man, I don't know that that's I don't know." It just happens. People around you, they don't see it. If what God is placing on your heart is forward thinking, if it's out of the box, if it doesn't seem realistic, if no one's done it that way before, there's always going to be people, even people with solid hearts who don't understand it, and they're not going to necessarily support you in it. When Tara and I couldn't have children, we were just like, man, are, is this just how it's going to be? We're barren. We're on year four plus, and we have not got pregnant yet. What's going to happen? The idea of going to a fertility doctor in Utah, and there's a stigma on that. There's a big stigma. We prayed about it. God, you want us to do this? Gave us the green light. 
haters going to hate. Let them hate. There ain't no way. You go to where you go, whatever you want to do, there ain't no way you're going to get a baby unless God says there's a baby coming. And we knew that. We, through the process, trusted more and saw God's sovereignty more in that process than I'm sure we ever would have in and of ourselves. It's funny how he works. Some of you, you think, man, I think God has given me a desire maybe to be married, and I've tried, <laughs> exhausted the options here, um, but maybe an online dating thing might be in store. Even though it's 2016, there's stigmas. But what if that's what he asks you to do? You okay with doing something what seems like maybe a little bit goofy? There's some solid Christian couples in this church when I ask them, where'd you meet? They can come back and tell me a variety of Christian and non-Christian dating sites. And it's like, wow, just preached about God's sovereignty, and I can't believe he's sovereign over dating. Wow, that took me by surprise. But it happens. Of course, I'm not saying you should do all this, but I'm just saying... I'm just saying that perseverance feeds desire. If you come to God, if you come to God, keep in mind everything I'm saying tonight, the context of all this is for people who who love God, who are moving in the direction, they're following his will. This isn't just for anyone to go get whatever they want. God won't be manipulated. He's not going to be mocked, okay? He's got a plan. He's got a will. But for those of us who are genuinely seeking him and we're coming to him, if he lets a desire continue, even if he doesn't make it super clear, you're praying about it and you're like, I can't get a yes or a no, but he lets it continue and he's growing it, he's not killing it, and you've said, God, kill it or grow it, and he's growing it a little bit, he, he, he's going to test it. He's going to test it because every seed, wherever it's planted in this world, it's going to go through its first winter, it's going to go through its first storm, it's going to go through its first freeze. It just happens. It's got to happen. And so don't be taken back when people aren't always jumping on the bandwagon to support what he might be putting in your heart. If no one else sees it, then it doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. I'll tell you what, if we're going to reach this city for Christ, there's going to be a whole bunch of goofy things we're going to have to do along the way that ain't nobody coming to us right now saying, we see it, we see it, we see it. It's been done that way. We're going to have to get creative. We're going to have to step out in some ways. They're like, God, I don't know if this is super comfortable. He's going to say, just do it anyway. We've got to be open-minded to that kind of thing. We've got to be. But Hannah answered in verse 15, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. All right. Here, we see these seeds sometimes are sown in the dark. Sometimes the strongest seeds of desire God gives you are in the darkness of life. Man, poor girl. She's feeling horrible at this point. She's accused of being drunk. A priest has given her a hard time. You got to think, like, seriously? Like, I'm coming here about a baby. I'm nervous. I don't even want my husband maybe knowing that I'm praying about this. I, I am so worn out and my wits end, and you're, you're asking me if I'm drunk? What do you even know about being drunk anyway? Sometimes pain produces some great soil. 
See, when emotions run high, when you come to your wit's end, when you get to the point where you feel like, I'm just going to break, I'm just going to break, i got to turn this thing over to God if you hadn't already, but I'm going to break, I can't do this. Sometimes that's where God places some of the most life-changing and world-changing desires in the hearts of his people. Because he knows that pain produces great soil. You see, pain produces great soil because pain is the cut. And when you get cut in life, you can either get wounded deeply or you can have roots grow deeply. And so if he places in the cut, if he places a desire in your heart, it's going to take hold at a deeper level than it maybe would have otherwise. And what happens in pain, this is what we're hoping, all right, for our lives. What happens in pain is when we come to the end of ourselves and when we feel broken because and we feel like, man, he's, he's got me at a turning point right now, there's a shift in motivation and a shift in strength in that this happens. God, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to live for myself. I got myself into this position, and it's stupid, and I'm broken, and I've been balling, and I don't know what to do, and the shift in motivation happens. God, I want to live for you. I, I want to do your will. I need you. I got to have you. I, 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 I'm, I'm tired of just following through with my own stuff. I need you, and then the shift of strength. God, if I'm going to live for you, I can't do this on my own. You know I can't do this on my own. And his spirit's faithful. It's going to be in you, and it's going to, okay, I didn't call you to do this on your own. I called you to trust and lean and press into me. But if desire, if he gives you a desire in that place, you bet it's going to come in and take a deep hold. And you've got to have that. Because when it gets tested, you've got to have that thing sink in itself deep into your heart. It's going to make it through its first couple winters. But here's the thing. This is, for most of us, what separates the flippant desires of our heart. Like, eh, I got a desire to eat at McDonald's tonight, you know, compared to the life-changing desires of our heart. See, it's not that God wants to answer one more than another, but not all desires are pursuit-worthy. Not all desires are pursuit-worthy. For instance, uh, the old saying, don't let a nickel hold up a quarter, or don't let a nickel hold up a dollar to some degree, rings true here. In that, if you have two desires, one of them is, hey, I got four bucks, and I want to eat a Big Mac. God, can I eat a Big Mac here? I'm going to pray about it and see if maybe I can eat a Big Mac. And he gives you the green light. Don't know why, but if he gave you a green light, you could say, that seems like a little desire, right? But then you got another desire he's placed in your heart to see children and people all over the world come to Christ. And you know there's avenues financially that you can help with that, maybe even going over and helping personally. And you think, okay, I got two green lights, but I got four bucks. Am I going to bow down to the, the little desire here, although I got the freedom in Christ to do so? Or am I going to give it to the bigger desire, the one that changes lives for people? And so this is where God separates things. And he says, I'm going to tell you in the pain what's really important in life. And he doesn't, he doesn't, in the pain, usually give us the flippant desires. He gives us the serious stuff. The stuff like, I'm going to live for him for the rest of my life. Like, I'm going to devote myself. I am a disciple maker. I'm going to do this he's called me to. I'm going to do it. I don't care what it looks like job-wise, career-wise, family-wise. It's just going to happen. Those are the kinds of things that happen in pain. And so good seeds get planted in the good soil. 
It's what happens when darkness and light collide. When we went out to Utah, we had that full year to plan and to prepare and pray. And we did, but it was hard because we watched a PowerPoint. Uh, it was a 163-slide PowerPoint prior to going out there. This is, w- this is where we knew God was calling us to pick up from Lynchburg, Virginia, and go out to Price, Utah. And it was about the lostness, at least statistically, in America. And it showed every state, and it showed it three different ways. That's why it was over 150 slides. And I remember Tara, she sat down with me, and I said, just look through all these slides, 163 of them, and tell me what you see. So it's saying uh, the, the metro areas throughout the U.S. And, and the small counties, the big counties, just showing all the statistics on the most lost evangelical places in America. And after she got done with it, she came to the same conclusion as me, and she said, it looks like, essentially, Utah is some black hole. Like That's the one that's always popping up. It's just like, man, there is less than 2% evangelical out of all these people, a couple million people. Why? And God planted a seed. And then we started doing some research. He kept the seed going. She came home from work one day. I'd done a little research. I said, what do you think about Price, Utah? She never heard about it. Little did she know, I'd called out there, talked to some people. They told me all kinds of places that needed churches. One sat in my heart. After an hour and a half long conversation, she comes walking in the door. What do you think about Price, Utah? I Googled Price, Utah. saw it was a city like 10,000. She said, I don't know. You want to go out there? You want to plant a church? You want to move there? We pretty much decided, yeah, let's do it. In the meantime, on a weekly basis, in prep to go out there, I would look at the, n- at the weekly newspaper. They just had one, one, one day a week, a newspaper. And in that, I would read the obituaries. And I would read them over and over and over. And I would read, so-and-so, 92 years old, chapel service at the LDS church. I'd read, so-and-so, 45 years old, chapel service, LDS church. So and, so, and I just read through them, and I thought, oh my gosh, the, the, the obituaries are relentless. They're dying. People are dying, and it seems like there's a good chance they're dying apart from Christ. And it gave us more and more desire. And we went out there, and we saw the land, and we saw the people, and we prayed, and it gave us more desire. And we kept just immersing ourselves in the brokenness to some extent, so that we had a desire to reach these people. And every death we heard of when we were out there, overdose deaths and suicides and murders, one out of every 10 days there's going to be one of those three deaths in a city of 10,000 people, many of them connected to our tiny congregation, and you break over and over and over, and you let yourself, and you cry out to God, and you say, God, why is this happening? And he's just saying, it is the state of things now, but I'm going to change things. And he doesn't want us to sit there and sulk in the pain, but he wants his spirit to collide in us with the darkness we're experiencing because his Holy Spirit's going to redeem some things and break through some bondage, and he's going to use us as ministers, and he wants us to sit in it. He wants us to feel something. And sometimes you've got to sit in the brokenness a little bit so that you get so, you get so welled up with the desire. It is compressed. That seed is planted so far into your heart that you can't get up and walk and live differently. You have to live differently. You can't live the same. You can't live the same. 
Some of us, we see brokenness, and he's saying, I want you to be broken over the brokenness for the sake of reaching them. Reach them. Some of us see injustices all over the world. We say, oh, it's driving me crazy. Sit in it. Don't turn the channel so quick. Just sit in it until you're as broken as they are so that somebody gets up and does something. Because God's plan hasn't changed, and his church is still his plan, and his spirit is still in his church. Feel something. Verse 17, we creep to the end. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went, away, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. I'm not going to talk much about this, but let me give you one or two sentences. Her face no longer sad. Some of you, you have been a Hannah for a while. You have fallen on your face, and you have bawled your eyes out. And you have been at the bottom of the barrel, and you have thought things got to change. Maybe you were even convinced things change. you got to choose to start walking in the light you got to get up at some point with the presence of the Lord inside of you, and you got to start walking. Again, this isn't some kind of name it and claim it stuff, that if you just believe it, you can achieve it. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying, at some point, you got to trust. Let me ask you this question. Did Hannah have her prayer answered in that moment? It was answered, but she didn't hear about it. And yet, she was no longer sad. Why? Because she was choosing, hey, I came to you, God, and I gave it to you, and now I'm trusting. I'm a walk in trust. If you find yourself coming to the Lord in prayer, you can come to him, but if you want to know if you're actually giving it to him, are you still stressed out about it? Are your, is your worry growing, or is your trust growing? And the way you walk after will tell you that. And last but not least, they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah. I don't know if I need to tell you what knew Hannah means, but you'll find out quickly. Knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The word Samuel means God answered. God answered. Last but not least, here's the good soil. Your desire meeting God's will. Sometimes it's not a matter of is it your <laughs> is it your desire or is it God's will? The beautiful thing is that when your heart gels with the heart of the Lord, your desires start to shift. We see Psalm 37:4 and we get scared some of us do in, in the world because we say, "Oh no, does this mean that non-believers are going to see that hey, they can just get their desires of God from the, you know, He'll just give them to him because it says, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. No, but when you delight yourself in the Lord, what happens? Your desires change. Your heart changes and it naturally gels with the fathers. You see, men and women are all about kingdoms. We're all about kingdoms. The question is, is it about our kingdom or his kingdom? And so maybe we've been asking the wrong question the whole time. You see how well I led you tonight? Maybe we've been asking the wrong question. Not my will or, or your will or my desire, your will. But who's king? Who's king? And if Jesus is king, 
your heart shifts from your kingdom to his kingdom. And I'm not saying you don't check yourself, but I'm just saying you ain't got to walk around worrying all the time, is this from God or is it not? Because when you abide in him, when you live in him, when you spend time with him, when you repent and you obey him, when you're immersed in Christ and his spirit, you are in the middle of his will. You are. And sometimes, girls like Hannah, who it doesn't look like they got a hope in sight, and they've been wondering for a long time, is this baby boy, is this baby girl that I hope to have of God or not? She just said, you know what, I'm just coming to him, and I'm going to give it to him. And in response, God is saying, you know what, I gave you the desire because I made you barren, and it led you to exactly where I wanted you, which is me. And she came to him, and she did what I hope happens to all of us. He, she came with a desire for something and fell in love with the desire giver. And she came out of it saying, if I have whatever I asked for, whatever I asked for, I don't even remember what I asked for. Whatever, if you give whatever I asked for just a minute ago, I give them back to you. And that's where her will came in, her desire came in and meshed with the will of God. It changed before her very eyes. Man, as a believer, you're going to see that happen. You're going to see a whole bunch of earthly desires for earthly things change as he changes your heart. You're going to come for one thing and leave falling in love with him. And you ain't going to worry about what you came in for. I got to trust and I got to believe. You know I've said it a million times, Bible studies like this, you could look at this and from the outside say, man, there's not tons of people. Maybe this will help their life somehow. I believe when the word of God is spoken, when this book is open, I got to believe he's planting desires and hearts tonight that will change the world. And for some of us, we've been sitting on some desires because we feel guilty inside. And he's saying, I closed the womb. Therefore, I gave the desire. Stop trying to figure it out in your own mind and come and let me tell you what it's all about. You might have a world changing for the kingdom of God, for the glory of God desire sitting in your heart right now. But it's not compressed in your heart, nor is it dying because you ain't doing anything with it. Take it back to him. Let him choose what he wants to do with it. Let's pray.